Well, good morning, everybody. That, um, as Graham said, that's a little unnerving when uh, just about time to preach half the church leaves. <laughs> do, they, do they really need all that many teachers down there, or they just want to get away? <laughs> no. It is wonderful to see a church, lots of young people. Uh, last summer, we were over in, in England for a little while, and... Um, the last day we were there, our cousin took us to a church in a little town called Burford, not far from Oxford. And um, the, the, some parts of the building are 800 years old. Uh, there's stuff there found, it, well, it's many interesting things, but they, they found stuff that was from the old Catholic church before the Reformation. And during somewhere around the Reformation, all that stuff was buried under the floor of the church. <laughs> it became a Protestant church. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, we were there for a Sunday service, and it was pretty well full. It was I, I would say it probably seats 300 people, and it was just about full. And when they let the children go out like that, there was 60 or 55, 60 kids went out, and uh, the music was fantastic, just like here. And, uh, and then... Uh, this pastor got up and preached, and my word, could he preach? He, a real message from the Lord. And I was so blessed because I've heard, I've heard so many negative things about the decline of the church in England. And there is some truth to that. There's, there is an issue going on there. But to go there, and here's a place for 800 years they've been preaching the gospel. And they're still there, and they're still full church. And <laughs> it just blessed my heart to be there. So, anyway. Nice to see you again. Uh, I, I love coming here and take a minute to... I should come up before that for the last song and just sit and <laughs> see all my friends. <laughs> it's uh, real nice to be here with you. And if some of you are newer to the church and you don't know us, well, come and get to know us. We uh, we always love making new friends and being a part of the church. Um, thanks for your prayers and support and love. We uh, continue on in ministry. I, I pastor a little church at Curve Lake First Nation, half time, and uh, we have a little tiny congregation, about 15 people most Sundays. Sometimes it gets up to 20. Um, some time ago, Beth started praying that God would give us surprises uh, to remind us that He was working there. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, the our regular song leader went to a hockey tournament and forgot to tell us. <laughs> and we got there Sunday morning, there's no music. <laughs> and uh, there's an, another lady who only only attends church very occasionally. She was a, quite a strong believer years ago, but she's she's got involved in the traditional religions, and she thinks that you can't be a Christian and be Indian at the same time. And we're kind of working on her on that idea. I tell her, nobody told me I had to quit being an Englishman so I could be a Christian. <laughs> Whatever you are, that's how you come to Christ. And um, anyway, this morning we have no music. She showed up in her traditional dress and Indian hand drum. And she got up and Beth and her led the service. <laughs> Sing an amazing grace to hand drum. Hand drum has a special... Special sound to it. It's really something. Anyway, that was our surprise for that week. And God keeps on surprising us. And we still do. I do a little bit of itinerant preaching still. I travel around a bit. And 
I've just finished doing a Lenten lesson series, the seven Wednesdays of Lent. Have a noon hour meeting in Campbellford Baptist Church. And uh, we've just finished 18 years of doing the Lenten lessons. And um, really a tremendous to see that church so excited about the gospel, about Holy Week. They, they just, during Holy Week, they have the last of the Lenten lessons on Wednesday. On Thursday, they have a Gethsemane night service. On Good Friday, they have a service with the whole town. On Sunday, they have a regular Easter Sunday service and then a baptismal service at night. So they're, they're in church every day and they're so excited to be there. It's, it's bigger than Christmas and that's was our dream. That's why we want to do the Lenten lessons. This celebration of Holy Week should be bigger than Christmas. And uh, so 18 years of doing that. That's Lord's been blessing us good. Uh, it's a little town. Calvinford's a small town. It's not a big church at all. But, but uh, one, one Wednesday this year, we had 100 people out on a Wednesday for Lenten lessons. So God blesses them. We're, we're delighted to be in his work. Well, we need to get on. I came here to preach, so I've got to get on with it. Um, there are so many stories, incidents in the life of Jesus that are really, really fascinating. Uh, and I wanted to take one of those today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 7. And uh, you get a very interesting encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees. And then you get this really intriguing response from Jesus. And I don't know if, if I'm the only one, but I expect you do too. There's times you read what's going on, and Jesus' response doesn't seem to match what's going on at all. It's like there's a story going here, and Jesus is going that way. And those ones you have to stop and think about, and take some time, read some commentaries, and say, what's going on here? What's, what's the connection? Well, in this particular story, the Pharisees are taken up with ceremony. The outside, outside, exterior kind of part of religion. And Jesus doesn't even respond to their question about the ceremony. He starts talking about the condition of their heart. And that's where Jesus is on a different plane altogether. Ceremony is not wrong as long as the heart is in it. If it's just ceremony, it's empty. Let's read um, this fascinating story in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Uh, And that's true. One of the fascinating things in archaeology of the Holy Land is you you can find stuff, and you'll know right away if you're in Jewish stuff, because during that period of time, they used a lot of stone dishes, finely carved stone dishes. You know the reason for it? They say pottery is porous. So if a person who is ceremonially unclean touched that dish, and then you take that dish and you drink out of it or eat out of it, 
their uncleanness goes into you. And you become unclean. <laughs> now stone, stone is not porous. So if somebody who is ceremonially unclean touched the stone cup and then you drank out of it, it would infect you. You think, really? <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> but they had all kinds of stuff like that and, and uh, fascinating cultural stuff around cleanliness. In fact, when the Mishnah was written 200 years after Christ, one of the whole big sections of the Mishnah is on this whole issue of eating in such a way that you stay clean. <laughs> stay clean from, from, from whatever it is that is impure. So, they have many, many customs like that. So then what did the Pharisees say? So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. That doesn't seem to have anything to do with it, does it? He, he comes out with a stinging attack, calling them hypocrites. They, uh, they have a religion, but it's not a religion of the heart. The heart in the Bible is, is our emotions, our memory, our will, our choices, our motivation, our loyalty. It's the, the center of our being. And it's to God, that's where we need to be connected. And so Jesus says to them, quoting from Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Here are people that are very, very serious about their religion. In fact, most of the Pharisees could not hold down a job because it was a full-time job being a Pharisee. It took our life, took everything. Most of the Pharisees could quote the Old Testament word for word, the whole thing. These were people who were extremely involved in their religion and extremely committed. My word. They, they would, when they would go to the market, another Bible story talks about when they would go to the market and buy spices, they would come home and divide up the spice and take one-tenth of each spice presented as part of their offering at the temple. They even tithed their spices. These were good living people. And how could Jesus then call them a bunch of hypocrites? He says, you have a religion, but your heart is far from me, far from God. You have thousands of ceremonies, but your heart is far from God. You even have lips that sing praise, but your heart is far from God. Is that a danger for us today? Is it possible for us to follow the same path? Maybe it's even worse for preachers. We we get paid to be here. <laughs> there, there's a sense in which you have to be here. 
But it's possible to come into a worship service and have no heart connection to God. Your emotions are just not involved. Your will is turned off. Your heart is cold. And so when we read this strange response from Jesus, we have to take it a little more carefully and seriously and say, they were concerned about the details of their ceremony, getting things just right. And Jesus says, that's okay. That's not wrong. But your heart has to be in love with God to make the ceremonies really sing. And then verse 8 he, he says again another, there's, there's four things here that Jesus points out. And the second one is in verse 8. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding to the traditions of people. Now there's a very conscious verb tense there. You have let go of the commandments of God. It, God gave us his commandments. God gave us an understanding of morality and how we're supposed to live. God gave us a conscience and directs it by the, by the word and by the spirit. But the danger for human beings is to consciously or more likely unconsciously, you just let the commandments of God drift. You let go of them. And they had, certainly the Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with, had become so taken up with the ceremony and the the outward appearance of being a Christian, or a, a Pharisee, that they had let the Ten Commandments, the moral teaching of God, drift away. So first he says, you you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Second he says, you have let the commandments of God go. Just drift away. You're following the teachings of men. Then he says, and you have, I love this, interesting use of words, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Though you, you even make up a rationale for why you should just skip what God said. And here's an interesting, again, this is Pharisee stuff. You have to fill it in and get to understand. It says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and you do many other such things. So the Pharisees had devised a system that if a person had elderly parents, God's command, God's will is that you honor your parents and you take care of things. But they'd made up this system where the, the person could take the money and deposit it in the temple, like a savings account. Now it was dedicated to God, and it was not available to help his parents. Now it just sat there. When the parents were both dead, he could get it back. So it was just a rationalization to get around doing what God says. 
Now, we do it all the time. What's the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not... Come on, Peter. (laughs) The tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. And he gives a whole list of things not to covet. But we watch the advertising on TV and we make up all kinds of reasons why we need that thing over there. (laughs) We rationalize our behavior, make up excuses for why we don't have to really, really, really obey God. And if somebody does get really serious about obeying God, we say to them, well, slack up a little. Just not so intense about it. Now, we don't have Corban, but human nature never changes. We make up rationalizations for why we shouldn't have to fully obey God. And then Jesus turns the table and he says, now I'll tell you what really is the source of uncleanness. The source of uncleanness is not whether you rub up against other people who are not of your same religion. The source of uncleanness comes from within. Beginning of verse 17, Jesus says, no, verse 14, sorry. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can make him or her unclean by going into him or her. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that makes him or her unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered into the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but goes into his stomach and then out of the body. Mark adds a little caveat here. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, if you want to keep kosher laws, go ahead. doesn't hurt anything. In fact, it's very healthy living. But it's not necessary for righteousness. Jesus changed everything right there. Then he went on. What comes out of a person is what makes him or her unclean. For from within, out of people's hearts come. Now listen to this list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, Envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. Here's the basis of humanity's problems. We would like to believe that the source of our problems is out there somewhere. We can always blame other people. It's strange and interesting in the Western society, we've come to an understanding of things that almost invariably what kind of social problem, social evil that we have to come face to face with, the answer is to get the government to spend more money. It isn't working. And it's fascinating this list of 
of evil that Jesus outlines, fascinating in two or three ways. One is, this is a Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, in the Jewish environment 2,000 years ago, in the midst of the Pharisaical type religion. And later, the Apostle Paul gives two or three lists like this, a list of evil things, in a Greco-Roman environment. And they're almost identical. And then here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and we read the list and we think, well, that's it. That's TV news last night. That's the description of life in, in the world we live in. So amazing how it hasn't changed. Another thing I find fascinating about this list is it, it isn't ranked. Somehow you'd think it should have the big sins up here and the little sins down. <laughs> it's, but it's all mixed together, like um, theft right beside murder. Envy right beside slander. It's just all mixed together. Private things and public things. Uh, it's, it's just a description of the evil that comes up from within us. Interesting, it starts with evil thoughts. Any activity we do that is outside of God's will starts in our head. It's our thoughts first. Then sexual immorality. Sex, sexuality is not wrong. In fact, if you take the I-M off, it's interesting, sexual morality. The word immorality just means with no morals. So the evil that's destroying our culture is sexuality without morals. Then theft at every level, from two bucks to millions. Murder. I was shocked. Somebody, somebody told me recently how many gun deaths there are in the United States every year. And I, I was so shocked. I still haven't been able to take it in. I, I kind of think I know what they said, but I wouldn't even quote it. It's just unbelievable the murder that goes on in our society, North America. And then adultery, the def- defilement of our marriage covenant one to another. Then next, greed. Where are we at in our society when a certain famous guy on TV can say greed is the answer? Greed drives this culture. And economically, there's a lot of truth to that. Malice is the desire to hurt somebody. Not only you want to make them pay, you want to hurt. Deceit. They're using dishonesty to deceive other people. Lewdness. Lewdness is flaunting evil with no shame. Of course, in our culture it has a sexual connotation, but it's not necessarily. It's flaunting all kinds of evil with no shame. Envy, we've already talked about that. Envy, just desiring what other people have got. Desiring what God gave that person, but he didn't give you. Slander, trying to destroy other people's character. Arrogance, I know everything. Unteachableness. And last but not least, folly. Just dumb, dumb decisions. 
what AA people call stinking thinking. <laughs> Just foolishness. What? Where does that all come from? Now, right away, you can feel it in your heart, can't you? You want to say it comes from out there. It comes from the TV. It comes from the education system. It comes from our government. It comes. Jesus says, no. Uncleanness comes from within your own heart. And once you get to accept that, then you can do something about the issue of evil in your lives. Jesus points out clearly that sin or evil is a serious business. No ceremonial hand washing is going to take it away. No coming to church and singing lovely songs is going to take away sin. No getting baptized in the lake and doing it right. I have some jokes along that line of people that didn't want to be baptized in a tank. They want to be baptized outside. And <laughs> I've had some really interesting baptismal services. One time I, I did a baptismal service in the lake and uh, some of the older people came to me in the church and giving me a hard time about changing too much. And I one thing or another. And they said, and how come you're doing the baptisms in this new way? Well, I said, I think this is the old way. <laughs> but you know, we, we get all hung up on ceremonies and traditions and ways of doing stuff. And, and Jesus says, that's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. Now, what can we do about that then? God's solution. Now, it's not in this particular Bible story, so you have to interpret it from other things, but I think you have to start, and if you've been taking notes, it goes one, two, three, four, and from now I'm going backwards, four, three, two, one. So, you gotta start with believing in God. What do you do about the evil in your own heart? You got to start with believing that God exists. And if God exists, then God has every right to set the standard of what is good and what is wrong. In fact, God is the source of all that's good. And evil is the lack of that. Evil is contrary to God. Good is parallel with God. Flows out of God. There's a wonderful story from Ravi Zachariah at one of the major universities. Some of the Christian men brought the leaders of the uh, Student Atheist Club to one of Zacharias' meetings. And uh, they sat through all the question and answer, never asked a question. And uh, on the way home, the Christian students said, why didn't, why didn't you get up and challenge him? Why didn't you have an argument with him? And this atheist, young atheist said, his, his arguments are pretty tight. <laughs> but then all of a sudden he said, but that doesn't mean I'm going to become a Christian. 
And Ravi Zacharias's response to that was, becoming a Christian is not just an intellectual decision. It's a moral submission. Because if you once admit that God exists, and that God created this universe, then you have to bow the knee, and his moral law takes precedent in your life. And that's the stumbling block. It's a moral decision. And so what do we do about the evil that comes up from our own hearts? First of all, I say you have to believe in God. Second, accept that God has the right to establish certain standards. And then, confess your sin. The word confess comes from Greek. You know what it means? It means agree with God. (laughs) When you said you confess to God, it means you look down that list and you say, I guess I don't like it, but I have to admit you're right, God. I agree with you. And if you agree with God, then those things are wrong. And if that's the case, the next step is ask for forgiveness. Because you can't save yourself. You can't change enough to be a new person. But we ask for forgiveness, and God in his great mercy saves us. He saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin to twist and warp our lives. He saves us from the damnation that will come in eternity. Salvation is in our God. And then, instead of making up excuses like the whole Corban thing in the paragraph before, if you want to really change your heart, I think you have to practice being honest with God. That is a hard thing. I had a professor in Wheaton years ago, and he was an eccentric kind of a character. I had a lot of professors who were eccentric. They were fun. (laughs) But he didn't believe in public prayer because he couldn't be honest when other people were listening. And he prayed to the crowds that have prayed to God. So our faculty at Wheaton was a Christian college. They had, they took turns leading the service. We had chapel every day. And they took turns leading the service. Not preaching, just leading the service. And, um, so this guy turn comes to lead the service. So he got up and he welcomed the students and he said, now let us pray. Silence. And he waited about a minute. <laughs> and he, he wouldn't pray in public because he said, I can't be honest. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray in public. <laughs> but what, what Jesus is saying, I think, is that we got to learn to quit making excuses about our moral behavior and be absolutely honest with God. Quit making excuses about your bad temper and admit it's sinful and ask God to change it and be absolutely honest with God. You know, one of the hardest places to be honest with God is in church. Strange, you know? 
But in our personal lives, in our worship together, in our small groups, sitting around having a coffee with friends, practice honesty. Honesty with God. And the Holy Spirit is so patient. It's so wonderful at teaching us. And showing us what's, what's the right path to take. And then, I think the next step would be to start or improve on or keep on a path of godly morality based on God's will. See, if you believe that God exists and you turn your life over to Him, then everything in your life has to either line up with God or not. So if, if God is giving this direction, then anything that goes the opposite direction is sinful. It, it isn't whether or not in society we have these plebiscites and, and we decide certain laws by how the people vote and all this kind of stuff. You know, real, real morality hasn't got anything to do with public opinion. Real morality flows out of the nature and character of God. And we need to to build that into our way of thinking. It's first of all recognizing God exists and then asking Him to forgive our sins and then practicing honesty with God. And then we're going to have to deal with the moral issues. The moral issues in our own lives and the moral issues in our society. And what makes something morally right is how well it parallels the character of God. Not whether people like it, not whether they don't like it. It's how does it affect, how is it affected by the character of God? And that's a path of growing. I've been a Christian now a lot of years. And these moral issues are still real. Sometimes I, I, I really had hope that when I got older and started to get gray hair that these moral things would disintegrate. <laughs> I could just peacefully live a godly life. I think it is easier after many years. It does get better and easier. But we never can walk away from the moral issues of life and say, in that particular situation, God was going east and I was going west. Okay? Um, so... Um, Start or improve on a path of godly morality based on God's will and God's character. And then the final one, Jesus castigated them because they praised God with their lips, but their heart was far from God. And I believe that the top of going up from 4, 3, 2, 1 is to have a heart that's close to God. The problem was their lips praised God, but their heart was far away from God. And I believe that if we if we take a life of faith and walk it, gradually we get to a place where our hearts are close to God. We have a sense of God's nearness, a sense of God's acceptance, a sense of God's love, a sense of God's direction, a sense that we're never alone, never alone. I, I love to tell a story of a, 
an elderly native lady that I visited in the hospital some years ago. And she was in an isolation ward. For, she had some kind of skin condition that was in an isolation ward. And so people tended not to visit. And she was there for days all by herself. And I went and visited. I had to put on all that yellow gowns and all that stuff. And went and visited. And we were talking for a while. And I said, called her by name. And I said, you know, you must get awful lonely here all by yourself all day. And she says, oh, Pastor George, I'm not alone. Jesus is with me every day. <laughs> <laughs> Who's pastoring who here? <laughs> she says, a woman who had just learned to live with Jesus. Her heart was at peace, rest. And I've seen it in other people. I've seen other people who, even in the dying process, have found ability to just be content in God. Their heart is close to God. And you know what? That is life. That is eternal life. Eternal life is that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It really wasn't about washing their hands. It's about moral purity lived by the power of God's Holy Spirit with hearts that love him. Hearts that love him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And today we thank you for how he taught with razor-sharp understanding of our natures. And we thank you, Lord, for preserving this written word for us over all these centuries. And now, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will apply these lessons to our hearts. Father, forgive us where we do religious things, but our hearts are far from you. Oh, Father, convict us when you see us letting go of the commandments of God and follow what's normal. And Lord, teach us not to rationalize and make excuses but just open up to you. And Father, I pray for each person here, whatever stages we're in, whatever wherever we are on this journey, some of us have been Christians for many years, some of us are new Christians, some may not be Christians. But Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. Give us that faith to believe in you, an acceptance of your standards, Make us quick to confess, to agree with you that sin is sin, evil is evil, that evil divides people and divides nations and divides people from God. And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us our sins. Wash us from all uncleanness. We have no ability to, to forgive ourselves or cleanse ourselves. And so we ask in humble, humble confession for your forgiveness. And Lord, again, no matter what stage we are in life, give us the ability and the desire to practice being really honest with you. 
Help us, Lord, to to see things the way you see things and to submit to you. And Lord, help us grow more and more in true morality. And open our hearts, Lord, to your heart. Open your heart to us. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be close to you. In the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of the conflicts that we suffer through, in the midst of all the, the, the difficulties and sufferings of relationships with people, Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts that know you and love you and walk with you. And then, Lord, use us as a channel of your blessing. May your Holy Spirit bless other people because you walk with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.